Well, we're in this uh, series on uh, the Trinity, and uh, last week I was going to speak with you about God the Father, and, uh, and instead you get to hear about it today. It's now postponed our series and messed up our whole preaching schedule, but it's okay. Uh, and so we're going to talk about God the Father and uh, His relationship with us today. Uh, and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit and the relationship that Son and the Holy Spirit have uh, with the Father and vice versa and all of those things. Uh, but today, uh, if there's one thing that I want you to hear from me today, is that you need to know that we have a Father who loves us, that, that your Heavenly Father loves you. And, and I know that may seem obvious, but I just think you need to hear that today. That, that we serve a God that isn't distant, that isn't far off, but we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it says, it, it's when the disciples were asking Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And, and Jesus responds to them. The very first thing that he says to them is, when you pray, pray like this. He says, our Father who art in heaven. It's just this, this picture, this personal picture of, of not Jesus saying, my Father who art in heaven, or you should pray to Jesus' Father who art in heaven. It's our Father who art in heaven. And then he, Jesus kind of doubles down, and I don't even know if you can use double down because it's a gambling term with Jesus, but he, double, he doubles down on uh, Mark chapter 14 when he says, Abba, Father. He says, Abba, Father. It's just such this, this personal, uh, intimate picture of a heavenly Father, a phrase of affection that we have a Father who loves us, and wants relationship with us. The challenge with that, though, is we can have, if we're not careful, a real big challenge and a struggle connecting with God as our Father. What happens is, and I've heard it described as this, that many times what we do, try to do in our theology and in our understanding of who God is is we try to connect God from earth, from our earthly experiences, up. And we can't do that. We have to address who God is from heaven to earth. And, and I think that if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll, if we are equating who God is from earth to heaven, we will begin to filter or have, make assumptions or have these disillusionments of who we think God is based upon our earthly experiences. A.W. Tozer says, whatever you think about, uh, whatever you think about when you think of God is the most important thing about you. Meaning, whenever you think about God, what is it that you think about? It says a lot about how you view God. We make these wrong assumptions based upon our earthly filters and our earthly circumstances. And some of the assumptions and, and uh, kind of misinformation that's out there is, the, the first is that God is uh, like a puppet master, 
It's hard for us to relate to him because we see him as, as a, a, I was laughing in first service because I didn't know what it was called and somebody did and they, they called it out. It's a, a marionettist. Is that right? A marionette is the actual puppet, marionettist, which would imply female, so I've seen some male marionettists or whatever, but is that right? Marionettist? You know what? It's in my phone somewhere. Somebody texted it to me, tried to correct me. But so I think what happens is we have this picture of God that we are attached to these strings and we are performance-based people that, that now all of a sudden we have to do all of the right things and we have to perform for God. And if we don't perform correctly, he's, he gets angry at us, which is our second misinformation. Our second perception is that God is a tyrant. That he's angry at us, that he's the big bully in the sky that has his magnifying glass and he, he's looking to fry us little ants down here, these peons that are just running around and left to their own devices. It's this, this perception because of what maybe we've heard or what we've filtered through. The third is that we see God as the drifter, that he's just not really in the picture. And oftentimes this comes because of a, a filter through our earthly fathers. That maybe your experience with an earthly father has been that he was not present or distant. And it's in the midst of the distance that we recognize that it's because he is distant, he doesn't care. He's distant, he doesn't care about us. And it's just a wrong assumption. It's a wrong way to approach who our Heavenly Father is. The fourth way is we see God as a relic, that God is for the weak-minded. And this is a growing sentiment in our culture today. In fact, uh, as long ago as 2013, uh, Barna did a, a study in 13 and in 15, and in 13, 2013, 37% of Americans identified as post-Christian. Just two years later, in 2015, 44% saw themselves as post-Christian. And, and, and then we wonder why things are going the way that they are, why we live in a world that is morally depleted and ethically deprived, that, that we live in a world that has, has just put God on a shelf and said it's not relevant anymore. But the reality is, is only He can bring real meaning into our life. See, God knew that we would struggle with this. He understands our humanity. He understands everything about us. And, and because of our humanness, because of our humanity, He sends Jesus to this earth. And he does so, so that Jesus can point back to the Father and give us a picture and a character of who the Father is. And we have this beautiful display of this in, in, Mark, or in Luke chapter 15. It's a story of three different parables. Jesus is talking to the masses, and you might be familiar with these parables. It's uh, if, I'm not going to go into all of them, but if you have a chance, if you've never read Luke chapter 15, go and read it. It's this beautiful picture of the Father. We see this picture of the lost sheep where uh, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. 
uh, a picture of the lost coin and just the fervent nature by which uh, the, the, the owner is looking and searching for the lost coin. And then it goes into really one of, the, one of my favorite parables of all of Scripture, the, the prodigal son. And not so much because I relate to the prodigal. My life, uh, for the most part, has not been a life of rebellion or rejection of God. But it, I love it probably because I identify more with the, the older son. But I love the picture of the father that we see in this scripture. And so I want us to focus on that today. Four pictures of the love of the Father. It starts in verse 12. And if you're not familiar with the story of the prodigal son, it's, it's about a, uh, a son who goes to his father and asks for his inheritance before his father's dead. Uh, and it says, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. He's talking, Jesus is talking to this Jewish audience. And he's trying to point them to this picture of who the Father is. And he's telling them something that would have absolutely made their head spin. It would have blown their minds. The fact that, that, that a son would come to his father and prematurely ask for his inheritance, it wasn't, uh, it's, not, it's almost like it would happen today. I mean, it's just as bad today, probably not quite as bad, but it's almost as bad today as it was then. If I went to my dad, my dad's not here today, they, uh, they, they missed all of the cold weather. They were in Miami. They weren't in Cancun, but they were in Miami. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and they flew in on Saturday, and then they were like, well, we want some cold weather, so they flew to Cleveland. Uh, doesn't make any sense. But if I went to my dad, and I said to my dad, hey, and I don't even know if I'm going to get an inheritance. Probably not. It's probably all going to my sister. But I said to my dad, Dad, could I get my inheritance now? It would almost be like saying, I'm getting a little bit bored. It's taking a little bit long for you to die. So could I just go ahead and get it now? That's exactly what was being said in the case of the prodigal son a son coming to his father and asking for his half of the estate before his father was dead, was saying, I wish that you were dead. That's how serious this was. It's horrible. But what's interesting is that the father agreed to it. If I went to my dad and I said, hey, can I get my inheritance now? He'd be like, if you don't want to be a part of the family, by all means, there's plenty of other families. Like, go, you know. The, the father in the story says yes. He actually gives the inheritance to the son. And in my mind, I'm like, why would he do that? And I think it's because our father loves relationally. See, the father was unwilling to force the son to stay until he died. He was unwilling to force a relationship with him and, and make him be in relationship with the father. Instead, he was like, I love you too much to control you in that way. And even though the father knew it wasn't best for the son at that moment, in that moment, the, the father stood for relationship. He, he stood for love in that situation. When I was a youth pastor many, many, many years ago, 
we would have, uh, we would have students come to us, uh, to Kelly and I, and, and, and they would often uh, come to us when they were having a problem with their parents, hoping that they would find sympathy with us, hoping that, you know, when, because their parents actually made them go to school or do homework or, you know, uh, grounded them because they didn't do the things that they were supposed to do, that I, I was going to say take away their cell phone, but they didn't have them back then. So they, before all of that stuff, kids still complained about their parents. I know that comes as a shock, but they did. And, and they would come and they would be like, my parents hate me. Why do they hate me so much? Well, what did they do? They're making me take out the trash. They're making me go to school. They're making me do this. And, and I'm like, as a parent at the time, we were parents of little children, we recognized that parents, I don't care who you are, they want the best for their children. And yes, there are parents who have abandoned kids and all of that. I get all of that. That most of the time, parents want the best for their children. And sometimes there are things that we do as parents and, and we bring boundaries for our kids, not because we want to control our kids, but because we care about them. We love them. We want relationship with them. and We don't want to see harm come to them. And in the case of the prodigal son, even though he knew that this was the worst possible thing, he said yes, because sometimes our kids need to learn. They need to understand. They need to experience this on their own. See, what I pick up in this story is that we can trust the father's motivation. That his motivation for any sort of boundaries or guardrails in our life is not to control us, but to actually be in relationship with us. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, it goes on, and so he got up and he went to his father. This is after a period of time where the son had just completely blown his inheritance and finds himself now serving uh, pigs their food and eating with the same food as the pigs. And, and he finally decides that, you know what, it's better to live as a servant in my father's house than it is to, to, to be a slave here. And so he gets up and he goes to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he's filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. I think it's important to note that in this time, as Jesus is telling this story to the crowds, there would have been no situation in which a Jewish adult male would have ran. Like, it, it was embarrassing. It was, like it was considered childish that, that it was beneath them to ever run to anyone at any time. And so here you have a story being told about the father, this, this patriarch who, who leaves the house and runs to his son. I think that's an important fact. And I think the second important fact that we see in this story is that the son didn't deserve compassion. He actually deserved a, a punishment, not a celebration. In fact, the, the cultural punishment of their time would have been called, and I'm sure I'm butchering the name of this, but, but it was called kazah, 
where the community would, would take a clay pot and they would break it at his feet and, and they would condemn the individual with all of the things that they did wrong and they would excommunicate them out of the community and they were no longer welcome to be a part of the family. Now think about that and then think about a father who's running to his son and when the father ran, he is literally running to cover him, to protect him, to save him. Instead of subjecting him to the shame of Kazah, he embraces him. He shows the village that his son is forgiven. And he moves to quickly restore him through uh, a celebration, a fatted calf, a, a barbecue, is what we call it here in Texas. All of these details would make the crowd absolutely be shocked. And remember, Jesus is pointing them to the Father. See, the entire village in this story, and it is just a story, a parable, would have attended the feast that night, and the son would have been publicly restored. The son who was dead is made alive again. N.T. Wright uh, once said that the story of the prodigal son could have just been easily called the running father, That, that it's so impactful to have this imagery of a father who, who set aside all of his manners and all of his potential pride and embarrassment to run and to cover and to forgive and to show grace to a son that was once dead, once considered dead and now alive. See, our father wants us to know the depths of his love. He loves sacrificially. One of the most famous verses of all Scripture, honestly been, been overused and oversaturated, and so it's lost, I think, a little bit of its importance and luster in our lives, comes from John 3.16, that our, our Father, our God, so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That he sent his son to point us to the Father, for us to understand his love for us. See, what the enemy wants to do in this life is he wants to hold us hostage, doesn't he? He wants, to, he wants us to think about the times in which we were blowing the inheritance well, he wants us to think about all of the things that have done, been done in our past and, and hold us hostage to the fact that your father could not ever embrace you or forgive you or love you. That's what our enemy does. We can live without condemnation because we have a father who runs to us and covers us and removes the condemnation and brings about forgiveness and grace in our life. The enemy wants us to live in our yesterdays and we can, in freedom, move to the future of what God has for our lives. It goes on in verse 21, as the older son is watching all of this unfold and feeling a little frustrated, and that's an understatement. The son said to him, oh, I'm sorry, this is not quite there yet. This is still the, uh, the prodigal son. The, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. See, this, the son comes back and he's like, just make me one of your servants. But the father lavishes gifts on him and he, he goes over the top. And these aren't just trinkets. These are legacy type gifts, inheritance type gifts. I, I found this picture of, uh, as I was studying this, the, this image of the sandals and putting the sandals on the son's feet and how important that is in the sense that when he was a slave and he was feeding the pigs, his sandals would have been taken away from him to keep him enslaved, to keep him there. And this picture of a father who's, who's putting sandals on his son's feet is to say, you have your freedom. You are not a slave to the past. You are my son. And he gives these extravagant gifts, and that is the picture of our father, is he loves extravagantly. He loves over the top. And because he loves extravagantly, we can increase our expectation of him. I don't mean monetarily, but I do think that many people, especially those who, have, who, who kind of live with this poverty mentality, believe that God doesn't want to bless them that they're not good enough, that they have all of these other assumptions of who God is and, and they've made all of these misperceptions of who God is and, and so they live their life with the assumption that God doesn't want any sort of grace and favor over your life. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We ought to be a people who are living with higher expectations of God, God's extravagant love for us. The older son sees what's going on. He doesn't think it's right or fair. And this is what he says is the verses I was alluding to in verse 31. The father looks at the older son and says, My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. It's easy for us to get focused on surviving just another day. And I think if anything has been revealed to us this last week, it's like, uh, are we going to have food? Are we going to have water? Maybe more importantly, are we going to have coffee? Like they, they, these are the things that, that, you know, every single day we're just living day to day. Are we going to have power? We're going to have it for like, you know, I think well, the shortest we had power was for a minute and 32 seconds. And then we lost it for 32 hours. It, they, we live day to day, but here's how the Father sees us. He is thinking eternally. He, he wants us to spend eternity with Him, that this isn't just about the here and now. This isn't just about an inheritance on earth. This is about the inheritance of the kingdom of God. This is about our time spent with Him in eternity. Our Father longs to change the trajectory of our lives. As he changes the trajectory of your life and my life, he does it one human being at a time. I want to share with you just a little bit, and then it doesn't matter. They don't have the notes anyways, but I know you're taking notes, Fervis. Yeah. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about my perspective of the Heavenly Father. My Heavenly Father, and I, and I 
this is your heavenly father too, but I just want to share with you my experience. My father doesn't, doesn't just long to give gifts and make my life easier here. My father repairs the broken spirit. And I don't, I don't know how to explain this other than growing up in the church. My, my parents gave me a, a really great childhood and um, my teenage years. I was never, you know, most pastors' kids uh, rebel against the church and they, you know, they are the prodigal son. They're a picture of that. And I just wasn't that. I mean, I was by no means perfect. Uh, that would be my wife. She was perfect. Uh, but, but not me. But I didn't really rebel. My parents never pressured me in the church or with religion or, uh, or Christianity even. But what, ha- what I noticed would happen as I, as I grew up, I went to Christian school, uh, that I had this perception. I, I, my misperception of God was uh, performance-based, was that he was the, oh man, the marionettist. The, we have to go back to that. He, he, was, he was the puppet master and that I was to perform for him and I was to be the right, right person for him and, and to be good and to, uh, to do all of the right things. And, and what happened was is when I realized that I could never be enough, not necessarily for him, but in my own expectations, my spirit was broken in that. But what I discovered in the midst of that is that my God repairs the broken spirit. He doesn't just offer to forgive us. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just reserve us a place in heaven. He actually offers to heal us. He offers wholeness here on earth. That in the midst of of us thinking, well, you know, I've just got my fire insurance and thank God he's forgiven me for all my past. He actually repairs and brings healing and wholeness to our lives. That's my heavenly father. The Bible is filled filled with all kinds of comeback stories. Men and women who had a broken spirit or had a broken heart and God restores them to a place of wholeness and wholeheartedness. It's not just the story of the prodigal son. It's a perfect imagery and an example of the father, but we see it in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. He's sold into slavery by his own brothers. If that doesn't break your spirit, I don't know it will. He's falsely accused by his boss's wife. He's forgotten by his friends in prison. But God restored him. Then there's Peter. Jesus identifies him as one of Satan's forces. He makes big promises to Jesus, he, and yet his courage evaporates when it's needed the most. He feels like an utter failure, and guess what? God restores him. John Mark abandons his friends at a crucial moment, and Apostle Paul writes him off as a coward but God restores him. For some reason, this offer from our Father, this restorative work, this picture of a restoration kind of God has been lost in the midst of of our culture and, and our society, especially even in the church. And maybe that's because we're afraid to admit our brokenness. Maybe it's because we, we live in a world where to admit weakness or 
To admit failure is, is such a taboo thing that we would never admit that we need restoration. Maybe we fear getting our hopes up that maybe all of this just seems too good to be true. See, God's plan for our life, our Heavenly Father's plan was not just to pardon us. His plan is to restore us. He, he repairs the broken spirit, but, but my Father also la- longs to transform my heart. It's interesting to me that in our culture, just in secular culture, we see symbols and stories of, of a restorative work, a, a, a work where things are transformed. Uh, you know, you have pictures of like the phoenix rising from the ashes or Cinderella rising from the cinders to become queen or the ugly ducking, duckling becoming a swan. Pinocchio becomes a real boy. The frog becomes a prince. Scrooge becomes a generous and a good man. The cowardly lion all of a sudden gets courage. Rocky Balboa becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. It's the best storyline in human history. We love those stories, these tales of transformation. Why? What is, it about, what is it about the transformation that we love? I think it's hope. It's hope beyond hope because in each of those situations, they are all transformed into the very thing that they never thought they could be. What would your life look like if our Father had not changed the trajectory of your life. In fact, what if we just paused for a second and just just reflected on the fact that if we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, that if He had not intersected and He had not done a transformational work in our life, where our life might be today. I would encourage you to write it down, not to reflect and to live in your past, but to be reminded of the transforming work of our Heavenly Father. See, the gospel is not a gospel of condemnation, but it's a message of grace. It's a picture of a transformed life and a transformed heart. It's the message of the Father, a message of hope. In Luke chapter 12, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. That we can have, his message is a message of hope in the midst of suffering. In verse 27, it says, Consider how the lilies grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. We can have hope. His message is a message of hope in the midst of stress. We can have hope that the prodigal son becomes the welcome son. That Zacchaeus, who was a shyster or a trickster, now becomes an honest person. We can have hope that the promiscuous Mary becomes faithful, that the murderous or self-righteous Paul becomes the humble Apostle Paul, 
that Augustine the immoral becomes Augustine the virtuous, that John the slave trader becomes John the hymn writer, that C.S. Lewis the atheist becomes C.S. Lewis the defender of the faith, not because we serve a God who is distant and doesn't want to have relationship with us, but because we have a heavenly Father that does a transformational work in your life. If you look the same way before you surrendered your life to Christ, you got to start asking the question, why is that? Because something's not right. Something of a transformational work should be taking place in your life. The Father God I know brings restoration and hope to every person that calls upon his name. Here's the challenge. We are people in our humanity who see God as our earthly father. We filter from earth to heaven instead of heaven to earth. And if you've had a broken relationship with your earthly father or even a strained relationship or a non-relationship, an absent relationship, (laughs) that's not a relationship, it's just absence. What can happen is you begin to struggle believing that our Heavenly Father actually cares and loves us enough to not leave us the way that we were and begin to do a transformational work in our life. And so I I felt, I shared with first service this, that as I was putting my notes together, that, that I was to pray for that relationship. Normally we do this on Father's Day when it's like everybody's the most tender But see, I believe that in order for you to have a clear picture of your Heavenly Father, there needs to be a restorative work. I don't mean that you have to reconcile necessarily with an abusive father or a father who's abandoned you. I just mean there needs to be a restorative work in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. That if you really want to understand a father who wants to give you good gifts, that that has to be addressed and dealt with. Now, statistically, I could name off all the statistics of people who have strained relationships with their fathers. And, and I just, you know, it's, an, it's one of those things as a pastor, it's like I can throw that out there and I know that there are going to be people who are going to respond. I just don't think this is that. I think that, that there is... For some of you, you, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and you've, you've left that, but, but it's still affecting how you see God as Father. And I just want to pray over you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand if that's you, um, mainly because I don't want my kids standing uh, this morning. <laughs> I don't, we don't have a strained relationship. But, but, but dads, you, you need to understand that how you treat your children and how you parent your kids also affects how they see their heavenly Father. And if it's, if it's negative and if it's mean and it's harsh, guess what? That might be the view of God that they have in their life. So I want to pray for your, your relationships, your relationships with your earthly father, maybe the lack of relationships, I would pray for restoration and healing over them.